Is there anything you would have done differently? We've reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Chris, we got a lot on our plate this week, but first. I'm well. We're recording remotely, so I, I, you look like you're doing okay. How is the pregnancy process? How, how is the transition to fall? How are all of the things related to making uh, a new human? It's getting hard. It's getting, it's getting hard. Yes. I went to a workout class this morning, and I had pains and places that no one would want to hear about. And I was just kind of like standing there and watching and like cheering the rest of the class along. I'm sure your moral support meant a great deal to them. Yeah. Uh (laughs) The best way to do a workout class, spectate. I may just start doing that. I may like go get a lawn chair, just go down to the bar studio till I get a Bring a bag of Doritos. Yep, exactly. Cool ranch. And just, you know, kick it. Just kick it. Let them know I'm here for them. But it's getting it's getting very real. I'm I'm huge. Your when are you due? I am due in January. So I just hit the third trimester on Tuesday. The end is in sight, though. The end is in sight. The end is in sight. That is true. All right. Front page, shall we? <laughs> Stories that we thought were most important this week. First up, Chris, I think we have to talk about the Politico scoop that we haven't seen or heard from Pete Buttigieg very much in the past four months or so. He's been back more recently, but Politico reveals. When did this, when was the revelation? Because I came to this story belatedly. When, when The revelation was a week ago. Oh, God. About a week ago in Politico's West Wing newsletter and that they inquired as to, you know, why he hadn't been doing interviews and out and about. And they said, actually, Pete Buttigieg has been on paternity leave for the past three months, and he's just coming back now. What I found, so I don't have any strong view on paternity leave or no paternity leave, which which seemed to be where this argument was cleaving. But I thought this should have been a bigger story, that he went on paternity leave and he did it. He's the Secretary of Transportation. And he didn't make an announcement to the public that he wasn't going to be on the job. And, you know, I I guess normally I would say the Secretary of Transportation is kind of irrelevant. But right now we have a lot of transportation related crises. And it seemed to me uh, there was a little bit of hiding the ball going on. And that's a big deal. So where the story went was very soon after this revelation or partial revelation or hidden ball, as you describe it, where it quickly went was attacks on Buttigieg for not being at his post while these the crisis in the supply chain is supply chain, as if somehow the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, being in his office was going to get a cargo ship full of dental floss and baby pacifiers through the port of Los Angeles, as if somehow he had the power to make this better. And then it very quickly from that. Wait, can I make one comment on that? Yeah. That is not the point. What do you have made a difference or what do you have not made a difference? The point is we, the people, are his employer. And he did not give notification. Of well, that's a, sep- that's a that's that's a separate that it, it absolutely is a separate thing. And on that point, 
you can imagine if you reverse the roles and let's say it was a female cabinet secretary taking maternity leave, it would have been announced and it would have been said, this is what's happening. And what I don't understand to, about to that point, Shalonda Young, who's working in the White House, I've read 40 times that she's about to go on paternity leave. She's in the or maternity leave. She's in the right. third trimester. Yeah, women can't hide it. When when Tammy Duckworth was having her, her baby, this was covered, 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 covered. And what I don't understand is that. So, well, just to just to to get us up to the present. So then the reasonable discussion and reasonable criticism and one that I would join in that he did not disclose in a robust way that this is a robust disclosure. I am a cabinet secretary. I'm taking three months off of work. That's something that you should say in a clear, loud voice from your agency. I a hundred percent agree with that. Especially I, if it's such a wonderful example of the way we should all. Well, be, yeah, you know. exactly. And uh, it doesn't make sense why he wouldn't do it because this, it, well, again, to get up to the current. So we go through the, the, the reasonable critique, the less reasonable critique, which relates to somehow it would have made a difference. And then it devolved into culture war, hobgoblin, goofball, silly pants, right? It just immediately was like, and I, I think we have the, I think we have the clip of Tucker Carlson talking about Pete Buttigieg's nipples. Let's play it. Pete Buttigieg has been on leave from his job since August after adopting a child. Paternity leave, they call it, trying to figure out how to breastfeed. No word on how that went. But now he's back in office as the transportation secretary, and he's deeply amused, he says, to see that dozens of container ships can't get into this country. So that's where it went. And then it gave Buttigieg, Buttigieg the uh, opportunity to be a victim and say how important it was that people, that men take paternity leave too, and that gay men take paternity leave, and that this be very important and this be honored. And I thought, as he was doing all this, well, why didn't you say so at the beginning then? If that's what you thought, if that's really what you believed, why didn't you say so at the beginning? And I didn't think that the the screw, the culture war trap is so much easier to cover, right? Because it's it's in the same category as Republicans pounce, and sometimes Republicans pounce. And it's I'm not saying it's illegitimate to talk about the mean, tacky things that people said about Pete and Cheston Buttigieg and their twins in no way, but the the scrutiny here missed the first test. And the first test was, what's the matter with you? <laughs> Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you handle this in a more normal, forthright way? I agree. It was like angry about the right thing for the wrong reason. Yeah. And just also to remind everyone, as soon as it goes to the culture war, turn it off. <laughs> because you can't fix the culture war. It can't be won. It just, it can only be waged. The thing that, the reason that news outlets like culture war stories is because they are, cannot be solved. They generate a lot of heat and there's no requirement for results. You can just complain about how other people are. Speaking of culture wars, we have a culture war in the Senate between democratic moderates and democratic progressives. And Chris, David Korn of Mother Jones had a scoop. You want to tell us about it? Did he? Did he have a scoop? You tell you tell me what uh, a scoop in in quotes. David Korn reports that Joe Manchin is considering a switch to the Republican Party, to which Joe Manchin and his team did not reply to David Korn's request for comment. But then Manchin publicly said that is bullshit. So uh, was it a scoop? Or was it not a scoop? I think we have slightly different takes on this, but let's let's hear yours first. 
Well, so there is a thing that Manchin says, a senator from my home state, I've, and I've known Joe Manchin for a long time and covered him for a long time. There is a, a way Joe Manchin talks about being a Democrat in West Virginia that is there's a threat built into it. And you could either perceive the threat as I might switch parties, which I don't think he ever would. His power would go down a lot if he became a Republican on the one hand. And then the, but the, in the other way, what he's saying is, look, you'll never get another Democrat elected to the Senate in West Virginia. I admit, it's not like Kristen Cinema, where Democrats can say, I don't know, maybe we could win in Arizona. We have a, one Democratic senator already in Mark Kelly. Why can't we replace her with somebody else? Da, 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 da. So- that's that's the frame for it. But what I find interesting is David Korn, who this is not the first of this kind of controversy that he has been around. David Korn's message in his in his let's say it was an honest mis let's say it was a reporter's honest misunderstanding that the way that Manchin talks about like the Democrats better suck it up because I'm all they've got and they'll have a Republican if they don't have me that 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 could be, let's say it was just a, a misinterpretation of what he was saying. But the way that Corn uses it, of course, is that what's Mother Jones's job? To make Joe Manchin look bad and to satisfy the progressive left of the party that Joe Manchin isn't just a person with whom they disagree. He is a bad person. And that's why so much of the coverage around Manchin and cinema has focused on corruption, right? There's something she's doing it for the pack. She's doing it for the farm with $38,000 in contributions from the pharmaceutical lobby over a three month period. And they're always looking for the coverage assumes malign intent and cannot embrace the possibility even remotely in many cases that mansion and cinema are voting their conscience. And this is actually what they think or believe. And I think corn was part of that. Let me ask you, and I can't believe these words are about to come out of my mouth, but they are. What if David Korn is right and Manchin has been saying these things? And I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive that David Korn is right and Manchin would call this BS. Um, well, is that possible? Well, it's as I say, it's possible that that. It, it, do I think it's possible that Joe Manchin is telling people explicitly, I am planning to leave the Democratic Party? Considering, become, considering. Do I think it's possible that he said he is seriously considering leaving the Democratic Party to become a Republican? No, I do not think that that is. I, I don't think that's true. But if it were, right, if, if, if what was really going on here was that Corn had the goods and had exposed Manchin in mid-stride and then Manchin called it BS, then then corn would have scored it would be a major coup and he might have even kept the 50th democratic vote in the party but i don't think that's what happened i think that david corn engaged in selective listening to what manchin is always talking about and you know i know a lot of people who know joe manchin pretty well and i i, I do not think that i think there was a time maybe at some other point in his career where he might have more seriously considered this but now there's just no earthly reason for him to become a republican I think you're probably right. Uh, I gave it like a 5% chance that Manchin is telling associates he's considering this. And uh, what I what I found interesting is Politico playbook this morning. They say, we know David Korn and he's a great reporter, so we trust his reporting. I really hate when the media does stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I hate it because people that who you know and like and respect can make mistakes. Yep. And it's not a good reason 
like the fact that you know them and like them is not a good reason to vouch for their reporting if you have no other reason to vouch David, for it. David and I will is say, a very likable person. Chris, what the thing that comes to mind is the C-SPAN guy, Steve Scully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he said he uh, was during the debates, yeah, he came out and said my Twitter was hacked when yeah. his he was supposed to moderate a presidential debate between Biden and Trump, and he said. My Twitter was hacked. Uh, he got the caught. Trump campaign was seizing on a, a p- tweet that exhibited bias. Yeah, and, and he, and he also Wallace got caught. Went on Fox News, and we should try to find this clip. We will play it if we can find it. Here we go. I, do I think Steve Scully is biased? I don't. I think he's an honorable, fair-minded reporter. But uh, this isn't helpful. That you know, how else can you say it? It's not. But Chris Wallace goes on Fox News and says. I know Steve Scully and he's a good guy. And so we should believe him. And I just, I thought it was ridiculous when it happened. It turned out to be actually. Well, now, now wait a minute. The, so saying David Korn is a good reporter and we like him and therefore he is right. And Joe Manchin is wrong is like the, the story speaks for itself. But I would say that in the case of Steve Scully, a guy with a, what made his lie so damaging was that it was totally unexpected, right? That Steve Scully was a guy who had cultivated a reputation for even handedness and decency and all of this stuff for all of these years. This was like, he was the, he was the Brian, the the acolyte at the altar of Brian Lamb, uh, the founder of C-SPAN. And so for Scully to, to lie like that was totally out of our understanding and character of him. So if a person, I think that statement would have been fine if he said, I know Steve Scully, it would be totally out of character, but the statement from Chris Wallace was essentially, we should believe him because I know him and he's good, which good people are capable of bad things. Bad and things. and I, I don't know exactly. I don't remember what Chris said at the time. And I know I publicly, I don't know if I, whether I defended him. Certainly, I took a public position in regard to Scully that said that he's a he has been a good person and has a good track record and probably deserve. He, he, I would say Steve Scully was in a position where he deserved the benefit of the doubt and that if he publicly stated something that we ought to listen to him. But then, of course, he didn't and wasn't. Chris. I don't care at all about this item, but we're going to talk about it. Why don't you care about this item? Womp, womp. Uh, well, make make me care. Let's go. Make me care. Uh, your yeah. spinoff podcast. Uh, <laughs> that would be so good. Make me care with Eliana Johnson. So the the big media news of the overnight, we're taping this on Thursday. The big media news of the overnight was the revelation that the Trump Media and Technology Group, which you have never heard of, will create something called Truth Social to combat large social media platforms and be a media maker in its own right to produce what they call it non-woke entertainment content and news. So this is like Trump TV times Netflix times One America News. And this is all supposed to happen. And it's going public. Well, so we've we've talked about this before on the show, but it's through a SPAC, which is, so basically you can't raise money on Wall Street with stock sales that you, where you promise what the performance will be. The Securities and Exchange Commission rules forbid you from having a startup where you say, and we will make a bajillion dollars and we'll fly to the moon and blah, 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 because of Theranos kind of, it, it is uh, to try to reduce scamming. 
but the scammers will always find a scam. And the scam is you create a holding company that is nothing. And its only purpose is to raise money from investors and only with the promise that it will one day merge with this other company that is because they're not trying to raise money themselves can say anything they want true or untrue. They're not subject to the SEC requirements because they're not a publicly traded company yet. So this is the, this is sort of the wall street equivalent of, do you remember when Jeb Bush had his dumb Jeb Bush pack that they, you know, raised a hundred million dollars to, you know, run ads against Marco Rubio and buy hoodies for Jeb Bush. And it was like, I, it's not me. I'm just right over here, but I'm touching it. So it's that sort of a fake Chinese wall thing. Well, I found this hilarious because starting a media company like takes work and Trump doesn't really like to do work true uh, of this sort. And that the the guy behind the company that intends to acquire and take public the Trump social media company, his name is Patrick Orlando, and he is the chief executive of some company based in Wuhan. And also, by the way, Patrick Orlando is the most awesomely. It's, uh, it's amazing. That's the most awesomely soap opera name of all time, that it, he should be the star of Guiding Light, Patrick Orlando. So I think we're in agreement that this company is going nowhere. Well, here's but here's what it will depend on is Trump's willingness to plow his brand into it, right? How it, it, he, the, the success that his hotel branding had was because he was a remoter. And we have seen other efforts, and I mentioned One American News, we've seen other media efforts around this, this the Republican populist, notably the Jason Miller Twitter alternative that turned into a hellscape uh, immediately because of all this stuff. Here's the two things that this will, that the success will depend on. Will Trump sell out for it and push it really hard and push it all the time? That's because what you'd have to do to make it work would be get his people, you know, to get the five or 10 million Americans who are really, really MAGA into this and get it done. Then it could make money. I don't know whether it could ever sustain itself, but certainly as a a profit-taking enterprise, just in the same way a lot of the fundraising pack stuff for Trump has been, this could be like that, but with clear profits. The other thing that it would depend on, though, and this is the test, the way that the populist right has gone after social media companies and news media companies is to uh, talk about the bias, and they're not putting they're not putting out the points of view that they say are the are truly reflective of the of the American polity and that's the American right. But that's not like a unique value proposition. I just don't know it's taking off. But if it does come back and but no, but here's right. the thing: they say for them to succeed, they're going to have to do the same things that they accuse the mainstream media of and that they accuse social media companies of. Uh, they'll have to do it. They'll have to monitor and regulate content. They'll have to make it a good place where people want to be. Part of the problem for whether it's One America or, or the social media stuff, the problem is if the content's not good, if the product's not good, nobody cares. And the way to make the content better is to engage in some of the practices that they have criticized other for, others for, including content moderation, journalistic standards, credibility, blah, 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 blah. I'm like hesitant to go down this rabbit hole, but <laughs> I don't agree with that. I think that Trump supporters and the MAGA types would be totally happy to have a media ecosystem filled with conspiracy theories and blah, 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 blah. Right. But it can't, but they don't want to be one, you know, what happened to Jason Miller's thing was 
that it just got overtaken by porn, right? And because they didn't have any content moderation standards. And you have to, and that's that's the thing. Uh, Wayne Cruz from the Competitive Enterprise Institute has a joke about Google and the people who complain about Google. All search results must appear first. The 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 idea that somehow, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say it like this. The right needs to figure out how to do this stuff in an intentional way that is in keeping with the values they say are important. It can't be no moderation and it can't be no standards. It can't be this stuff. Okay. I don't think but- Trump is the guy who's going to bring, <laughs> who's going to ferry that entity forward. Fair, fair. Okay. Brian Stelter. The highlight of my last weekend was watching Brian Stelter interview Barry Weiss, which props to Stelter for having Barry on. She completely dominated and owned him and i wanted to play that clip who's the people stopping the conversation who are they um people that work at networks frankly like the one i'm speaking on right now who try and claim that you know it was it was racist to investigate the lab leak theory it was but i mean who let's said just that take at an CNN. example but i'm just saying that when you say allowed i just think it's a provocative thing you say you say you say we're not allowed to talk about these things but they're all over the internet well, what, i can google them i can Brian, find them everywhere i've heard about every story you oh, mentioned so i'm just suggesting of course people are allowed to cover whatever they want to cover but you and i both know and it would be delusional to claim otherwise that touching your finger to an increasing number of subjects that have been deemed third rail by the Mm. mainstream institutions and increasingly by some of the tech companies will lead to reputational damage, perhaps you losing your job, um, your children sometimes being demonized as well. And so what happens is a kind of Mm. internal self-censorship. This Mm. is something that I saw over and over again when I was at the New York Times. That was amazing. She's obviously correct. What what befuddles me is that Stelter seems not to understand what she's saying. And when she says that you folks in the mainstream claimed it was racist to say Wuhan came from a lab, he's like, who at CNN did that? Who at CNN did that? Well, I'm just going to pull up this link, which is. Chris Eliza article, May 2020. Well, of course. Anthony Fauci just crushed Donald Trump's theory on the origins of the coronavirus. And the whole article is about how Fauci is so much better credentialed than Trump. And who are you going to believe, the idiot president or the scientist? And well, Trump, wasn't, paragraph. Trump wasn't right, though. Uh, he was right that it probably came from a lab. I well, I, I don't I don't know what state. Well, go ahead and read your thing. So Siliza writes, Fauci's view on the origins of the disease matters a whole lot more than Trump's opinion about where it came from, especially because outside of Trump and his immediate inner circle, most people in a position to know are very, very skeptical of the Trump narrative that the virus came out of a lab, whether accidentally or on purpose. I mean, that's just wrong. Yeah. No, that is, that that is wrong. Did he say it was racist? True. You may not have said it was racist. I know a lot of people did. I know a lot of people. For sure. Like, I mean, the New York Times COVID reporter, I'm blanking on her name, but a poor man. I, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her. What did they, but, what did they, what was Trump called it? The, the Kung flu. <laughs> right. But let's just say there was an, an active crapping on this theory. And one of yeah. the ways to crap on the theory was to say it was racist. They did it in many other forms that, well, Fauci said it's not, 
and Trump is trying to find a way to blame the Chinese and blah, blah, blah. And they were all wrong. Well, and 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 the the voices, I forget what all Trump said about this, but there were certainly voices around Trump that leaned pretty heavily onto the intentional, the intentionality that this is what China wanted to happen and that this was some sort of a chemical weapon or a, a biological weapon and that this was on purpose. That was not, I have not seen any evidence that supports that. No, I don't uh, agree with that, but I don't think that the people like Mike Pompeo and anybody who had actually been able to see the intel was saying or suggesting that. No, and 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 quite frankly, this is how a lot of the, this is the life cycle of a lot of these stories, right? So Trump says X, then everybody lines up to go punch Trump in the nose uh, because it's supposed to be a freebie as Saliza, very predictably for Saliza, puffs himself up and is like, we stand with Fauci and not big, dumb, meanie Trump. And so much of the coronavirus coverage tried to push things into Trump is wrong, Fauci's right. Fauci became the avatar for the coronavirus left. And that's where they went wrong. That's well, and, and well, where everyone went wrong was treating this as a political question, right? And receiving and understanding the pandemic response to and all of these other things as strictly political things. There's a lot of reasons why it worked that way because it started in blue big cities and then moved to rural areas and, and, and the Jacksonian nature of the Appalachia in the South. There's a lot of reasons why it turned out that way. But one of the reasons it turned out that way was that people like Chris Saliza and others got a lot of clicks with this kind of dunking on Trump coverage. And then a lot of the right wing outlets, their counter Chris Saliza's counterparts at Fox and elsewhere got a lot of clicks out of dunking on Chris Saliza. And uh, it none of it saved any lives. None of it made it any better. And it was just like it, it, it was a performative uh, journalism. It was performative art uh, masquerading as journalism. Well, Chris Saliza deserved to be dumped on, mm -hmm. dunked, dunked on. Trump and so did Trump for saying that he did, but not for this thing. Right, right, right. I'm, I, I don't mean in this specific case. I mean, throughout the Trump coronavirus era, the there was a mainstay of coverage was Trump says something. Trump gets dunked on and then the dunkers get dunked on. And it's it's a uh, it's a it's a it's all whole no donut. All right. West Wing Playbook, which is a Politico product that comes out, you know, 630 or so every night, which I think is like the best source of news on the White House. I'm really enjoying it. Okay, uh, they had an item this week that I thought was really interesting, and I'm not really sure what I think about it. But Biden is dodging print interviews and print specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, they report that at this point in 2009 and 2017, Obama had done 131 extensive interviews and Trump had done 57 Biden has done 10. He's done zero since Labor Day and one since May. And uh, I actually reached out to the reporter on this and said, so why do you think this is that he's not doing print interviews? He has gone on TV, but not that much. And I don't really know. Uh, I don't have an answer for this. He, of course, the obvious thing was, well, well he doesn't <laughs> want to say anything stupid, but he goes on TV and says stupid things. So I'm not really sure what the thinking behind print is other than they could potentially do a lot of damage and they don't get any upside the way they do from TV, where at least he's out there and people can see that like he's still alive. Yeah. I, I think the less Biden interviews any with anybody, the better for the administration, right? He is not 
as you say, the, it's proof of life <laughs> more yeah. than anything else when he comes out like, he, I'm here, I am the president, this is happening. So if I were uh, Jen Psaki, I would do as few interviews as possible. I would do as few interviews of, of all kinds as Me possible. Me too, including TV. But the other thing I think is interesting is I don't really think he's, I, their calculation, and I think they're right, is that Biden is not paying any price for not doing interviews. So why why do them? There's not that much upside and there's a lot of downside. So doing interviews was a way to keep Trump busy and he's still doing them, right? We see, yeah, I saw Molly Hemingway did like a 20 hour interview with Trump. Or but whatever. Obama did them too. And it wasn't just to keep him busy. Because they really believed, the Obama administration really believed that Obama was their best salesman. He was an asset, yeah. So let me, but let me tell you the thing. And I think this is the key. The best thing, one of the very best things about Joe Biden's presidency is we do not have to see and hear him all of the time. His two immediate predecessors could not stop. They just could not shut up to save their lives. And compared, here's the funny thing. The reporters here compare Biden to Trump and Obama. What they don't tell you is that Trump and Obama are way, way, way outliers compared to what came before them. And the here in 2012, at the conclusion of his first term, I'm sorry, at the end of his first three years, Barack Obama gave had given 408 media interviews with journalists in his first three years in office. That's three Where did you times, pull that from? Damn. New York, New York Times, three times more than George W. Bush. But at three times more, George W. Bush had still done a hell of a lot more than Biden. So, well, it's in three years. So, if so, that would that would mean that that Biden could match basically Bush, Bush's well, pace. Biden continues on pace. No, he will have done thirty. Okay, so he'll be if it'll he'll be done hundred some. Okay. <laughs> He'll be, he'll be shy. Chris uh, did not major in math at told, Sydney Boy was, Gentleman's College. I was told there would be no math. But at Yale now, you can just talk about how the problem makes you feel, and they'll give you, they'll give you I an took, I took no math at Yale either. <laughs> uh, all right, Chris. I just want to I just want to point out, please, politicians, continue to shut up more. I really would appreciate it, and thanks. I encourage Biden to talk as much as possible. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Chris, I'm so obsessed with this next item. It really should have been my obsession. You do not have to say anything. Okay. I can just go on a full-fledged rant. So we are back to Washington Post national reporter Felicia Sanmez. The background is that Sanmez alleges that she was sexually assaulted far years before her time at the Post, and she's been an outspoken victim advocate for sexual assault survivors and her axe to grind with her employer is that they told her she could not cover news stories related to sexual assault and she sued she them right impartial okay she has now sued them for gender discrimination and the last time we talked about this which i think was a few months ago i said i find it astonishing that she devotes, I mean, as much time as she devotes to actually doing her job, she devotes to crapping on her employer publicly on Twitter and going after specific people by name. Uh, so this one's like a twofer. She comes out on Twitter yesterday or the day before and says she is criticizing a Washington Post story on staff changes at the paper under the new uh, 
Queen Bee, Sally Busby, <laughs> and she's complaining that her boss, who she's accusing of gender discrimination, they don't mention her lawsuit in the report. So she's criticizing post management. She's criticizing their own report. She writes, today's post story on staff changes at the paper makes no mention that Cameron Barr, the number two editor, is a defendant in a gender discrimination lawsuit. Who's Weird omission. Yeah, it's hers. Her lawsuit. Oh, oh. Weird omission. Yeah, she doesn't. She also admits that she's omits. the person who brought the lawsuit. I'm suing Almost him. Almost like sexual assault survivor, survivors are treated differently at the paper. I have two questions that are they're rhetorical questions, but why the hell does she work there then? If she it, thinks this place is such a an abusive workplace, that's my first question. You know, the obvious answer may be that she can't get another job, but or that she wants to get fired. Uh, that's that's a I didn't think of have that. Have you never worked I mean, with a person trying to get it. fired? Oh, yeah, I've worked with many of such people. And they're the worst, right? Because they're daring their employer to fire them because it will help them in their lawsuit. And then the employer knows they can't fire them because of the lawsuit. And then when you go to edit that person's copy or deal with them in some quasi-managerial or executive role, you find that there are all these tripwires set up around well, Yeah, I'm sure there are many reasons to get rid of her other than this lawsuit. So th that sort of answers my next question, which was, I've just been astonished that the Washington Post lets one of their prominent reporters publicly dump on them and specific people in senior management. And like, do you think that's because they don't want to give her what they want? Or is their tolerance like an unnecessary concession that she kind of has a point and, you know, we're walking on eggshells around her? Well, I think it, uh, it so if I'm the lawyer for the Washington Post company, a subsidiary of Jeff Bezos's spaceship. You're the Amazon lawyer, yeah. I'm saying, look, here's the playbook that we have, you know, the HR legal playbook says we have a you know person who's making this kind of lawsuit, so we can't take these kinds of actions or else they will be described uh, as retaliatory. So we're just going to have to do it. And that would include demoting her. Right. That would include saying, you know what, you're not covering nothing, but we're going to keep paying you. You're you're basically going right. to be suspended or we're going to send you out to, you know, go cover Fairfax County school boards. No offense, Fairfax County school boards, but we're going to give you something. That would actually beat. be a good beat right now. That would actually be a good beat right now. So and I don't I, think it's going to be that. No, I don't think it's going to be that. But you know what I mean, that that the lawyers yes, would, yes, tell, would tell them you can't do this stuff. And then she knows that they so it's just a it's very shoddy. It's a very. It's, it's, I put it this way. I am, I have to check myself in my disdain for the Washington Post simply because I, I feel like I'm too, I, I, I'm too contemptuous of it, but it seems like week after week after week after week, the Post continues, you know, it's sort of like when Barry Weiss quit at the New York Times and we talked all about how the New York Times had gone crazy and you know, the, the, the Jacobins of the New York times newsroom calling for the blood of the, of the patriarchy and how everything seemed out of hand. I kind of think the real story has been about the Washington post and its descent into really goofy into a really, yeah, goofy really place. bad. Yeah. Well, do you want to do the next item or do you want to jump right into your post obsession? Well, you got, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm, That's kind I of forgot. a perfect transition. I forgot, but we do we do want to mention how correct I was about Politico imposing a paywall. I think we should note my awesome correctness 
Uh, news that- is that Politico's new owner, which acquired Ax- Axel Springer, the German company, acquired Politico for a billion dollars. We get news this week that they are going to put the news behind a paywall, all of Politico, which right now it's like, you know, partially behind a paywall. Yeah. And I say good. I say good for them. Good news. The idea of, you know, a lot of Politico's reporting and stuff is way too cutesy, way too clickbait oriented. The paywall should reduce some of that, reduce some of the pressure on that. And I'm just, I'm here to say that not only I was right, but good job, Axel Springer. I don't want the paywall. I want to keep reading it. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure. I bet it will be a, a relatively low. I bet it'll be $10 a month. Okay. I, I don't want the paywall. I resist that. I find them so annoying. And I'll tell you why. So that you can sign in, but then every freaking time you're on your phone, what's the sign Isn't in? What's my work? password? Oh my God. It's just like, it, it's not the paying. It's the accessing it after you have paid because it remains behind this wall are you are you already a member annoying log in which uh which email did you use and then actually if you're not a member if if you're not a member the sign for login if you already have an account is like in six point font and everything else is telling you your subscription offers i can never find like well i have a subscription where do i go to log in i'm on my freaking phone i don't want to type the email out it's so well that's why that's why at the dispatch we make it easy to subscribe. No, I uh, we do, but uh, yes, uh, those those hassles are real and very annoying. But uh, I end up just not reading it. So I guess they're getting like one part, which is my money. They're not getting my readership. Well, I hope I hope they find a way to have both. Chris, time for our obsessions. We got we took like a half step off track there, but. You just are going to continue your I know. dumping on the post. But this is the hilarious story, which we will link in our show notes. Okay. So the headline is zookeeping isn't common in the black community. This black zookeeper wants to change that. Now, in, in what community is zookeeping common? Is it, uh, do you think white people are crazy for zookeeping? No. Zookeeping is uncommon in every community. And they take this story. Uh, this is Pachula Dvorak, Dvorak, whatever. I've, I've never known how to pronounce her last name. I'm sorry. So what could be a, a story about a man and his work and how interesting his work is? Because being a zookeeper is, in fact, so uncommon that you're already on second base it's kind of cool there's there's like a picture of him in the art and he's feeding a porcupine and it's it's pretty cool yeah that other one what else do you need? yeah it's right it's cool. like you're already on second base with this profile you're already there and instead of doing a story about craig sappho zookeeper we get a story about craig sappho black zookeeper and the racial burdens of being a black zookeeper and his effort to bring more black zookeepers into zookeeping and you have to read pretty far down to get to the to get to a point that by the way i've heard this in discussions of art in galleries i've heard this in a lot of discussions about what <laughs> that, that okay so here's the the key paragraph Even as his, and he's a keeper at the National Zoo, yay National Zoo, even as his responsibility and prestige in the field grew, his black friends would dismiss his work as, quote, white people stuff. And indeed, 
the field is about 74% white. Do you know what else is about 74% white? It's just so amazing. The United States is about yeah, 74% white. And the idea that this is somehow uh, a story about racial inequity or that there any of th that there's a to find a racial component here, you have to dig so hard. Now, I'm not dumping just on the Washington Post. I'm saying all of the places that are looking for a way to make the story clickier or buzzier or more whatever, race is the easy, it's one of the easiest shortcuts to take to make a story because uh, this woman did not want to write a story that was like, what cute, you know, here's, here's kind of a corny story, which I like a corny story. Uh, here's a corny story about a nice guy who feeds porcupines and is really good at his job. And don't you like to see pictures of animals in the newspaper? That would be a perfectly good story. But she didn't want to do that. People don't want to do that. They want to get into the social justice space. They want to get into the hot zone. And so we drag all of these stories into the hot it's space. It's like shoving it into a yep. construct. I just really hate, and I remember feeling this when Pelosi became speaker and first female speaker, and everything she did, it was like first woman speaker does X, right. first woman speaker, you know, eats a turkey sandwich, first woman speaker takes a walk around the Capitol. Uh, but like making the news of what somebody does all about their race or gender, uh, I just there, I just don't. There's like. been a lot. There's been a lot said. There's been a lot of good and bad coverage around the death of Colin Powell. There's been a lot that has been said. There's been a lot that's been stupid. There's been a lot that's thoughtful. I'm not going to wade into all of that because there was it was a lot, right? This is not since Tim Russert's death. Could you feel the sort of uh, bipartisan Washington? Oh my gosh! Well, Chris, I just thought best decision he ever made was to become a Democrat because look how he was eulogized. <laughs> well, I mean, oh wow, repaying his decision in spades. He was. I uh, think they, they were drooling. He was pretty. He was pretty popular when he was a Republican. Like he he was. But he, he, Chris. He gained so much cred when he became a Democrat and well, with Obama. Or Hard but, throb. Well, I, I'm I'm sure that for some, but he, but you have to remember, he was very popular as a Republican. I like, have to remember. I remember. It and so he, I'm sure he got some extra stuff from that, and I think a lot of it is. I think a lot of it is. Uh, he was cleaning up that his actions there helped launder. Uh, what he did in the Bush administration right. to, in the run-up to the Iraq invasion. So that was sort of the, I think that was the, the that cleaned that up a little bit. For let, let me ask you something on this. Yeah. I was asking my husband, he had no good answer for me. Powell said supporting the Iraq war was the biggest mistake ever. He was pissed that the intelligence was wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And not to be like resigned about this, but... The intel was wrong. Our intel was wrong. Germany's intel was wrong. The UK's intel was wrong. What I don't understand, like it was a, it was an honest mistake. What was he supposed to have done? I, I think he, what he would, I, I don't remember exactly the argument that he made, but basically the intimation is that he succumbed to pressure from the Cheney faction to lean, lean hard into it and then go put his credibility to use his credibility as a very popular person and a very highly thought of person to go take right. that out to the international stage. Which suggests that they knew this that this was not true and sent him out to be the fall guy, which I don't believe to be the case. No, 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 no. I don't, th I don't think that was the case. But my, my point in bringing up the uh, all the Powell coverage is 
Colin Powell, I have, there, there's, there's plenty to gainsay Colin Powell about. And there was this sort of this cult of Powell worship that was a thing. But one thing that he didn't do was be, the fact that he was the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the fact that he was the first black secretary of state, he did not lean into that, right? He didn't make that in the way that you mentioned with Pelosi as the first woman speaker. Powell did not, and I think Powell and Obama had a similar gift for benefiting from the coverage that, uh, and the understanding that, wow, this is a history-making thing, but without having to jump up and down on it and holler about it. So if you were to contrast that with those men and the way Hillary Clinton ran her campaign, where instead of letting it happen organically, they had to go to I'm with her and they had to talk right, about it too much. Right. Th those sorts of firsts and attributes and all those other things are fine, but you got to let somebody else say it, not you. Chris, off topic, but I'm seeing on Twitter right now that the terms of service for Trump's new media site contain a non-disparagement clause. So it says <laughs> prohibited activities. You may not access or use the site for any purpose. Well, blah, well, this without the like permission, disparagement. Hold on. Oh, you may not disparage, tarnish or otherwise harm, in our opinion, us and or the site. <laughs> it's good. It's a place for it's open so conversation. It's a so fresh open conversation as long as you don't say anything mean about me. So on brand. All right. My obsession is what's happening at Netflix with the hubbub over the Dave Chappelle comedy special. The Netflix CEO essentially in the wake of protests from transgender employees, and transgender activist groups a week ago said, you know, it is what it is. Like, we are going to have controversial content. Well, that changed this week when in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, he gave like a half cave and he said he should have led with humanity in an interview on Tuesday evening. I should have recognized the fact that a group of our employees was really hurting. And he says his remarks on content not causing real world harm was an oversimplification and lacking in humanity. To be clear, storytelling has an impact in the real world, sometimes quite negative. I mean, okay, but I just found this to be like, you know, you're pissing off both sides. At least, at least the, you know, center right people were like fans of you a week ago. This assuredly is not going to satisfy the trans protesters at Netflix. And I wish he hadn't said it. However, this, oh, this could have been my say something nice. I really liked what he said. Uh, he told the journal, stand-up comedy is designed to stir up emotions. And while Netflix prides itself on having an inclusive staff and programming featuring a range of diverse voices, sometimes inclusion and artistic expression bump into each other. And I really loved his acknowledgement that at times, free speech and inclusivity clash. And you have to make a decision about which one your organization values more. I think it's like really important to understand and we don't hear it enough. And this really struck me because the Free Beacon for the last week or so has been covering a scandal at Yale Law School over the administration's crackdown on a law student over, uh, you know, a, a juvenile but inoffensive email, in my what opinion. The, what was the email? The email invited invited students to a party at his trap house, quote unquote. Which oh, yeah, said, yeah, we talked. Yeah, yeah. So. But the university has come out with a statement and Yale University, where they are supposed to be speaking truth 
and acknowledging these difficult trade-offs, they give this disingenuous BS, which is the vigorous exchange of ideas is the lifeblood of this law school. Protecting free speech is a core value of any academic institution. So too is cultivating an environment of respect and inclusion. These two values are mutually reinforcing. So that is what ah. Oscar Dean Heather Gherkin said. Are they? And <laughs> totally, they're, of course they're not reinforcing. And Peter Salovey, who's the president of the whole university, not the law school, said the same thing when there was a hubbub at Yale about Halloween costumes. And it's like this Yale woman should be telling the truth. The Netflix guy, like, wouldn't be surprised if he went out and lied to cover his own, but many- said stupid things like that these things are mutually reinforcing. So many good just, things. Many upside good, down. Many good things exist in tension. Many good things exist in tension. Uh, uh, peace, so li- peace and freedom can be in tension, and they often are. How free a society or how free a people are butts up against security and safety needs. Many good things exist in tension. And in the case of uh, liberal democracy like ours, free speech and feeling warm and fluffy and included are intention. They are necessarily intention or the speech is not free. And you can say that they're both necessary, but they're not complementary. They are, they are, they need to be juxtaposed constantly against each other. And the, that tension is beneficial tension because that's how we have ordered liberty. That's how that stuff works. You well, can't, well, you're losing me with the philosophy stuff here. Well, no, what I'm saying is the coverage of the discussion of how wokeness exists. And, and I think, what's his name? Sarandos? Yeah, at the Netflix guy. Yeah. who we'll just call him the Netflix guy. Who I, I, I like, I've heard him interviewed before, and he has a, has a pretty good attitude because I think what makes him interesting is that he got very lucky, right? <laughs> he was Netflix 10 years ago. People would have thought Netflix is probably doomed. And he, through producing a lot of good content, a lot of crappy content, but a lot of good content, changed the way people watch TV, changed the way da-da-da. Okay, whoa, well, we're like way far afield here. Well, the- my, well my, my point is, he's saying, I'm agreeing with you. He's saying that the tension is real, that the tension between these two things is real, and we have to do it as best we can. Whereas the case that uh, you're covering at Yale- that's just lying, right? That's just that's that's just newspeak uh, gobbledygook. And if we don't, if if coverage of this stuff does not reflect that tension, then that the coverage is as worthless as the statement. Chris, it is that time for your favorite part of the week, where I have to say something <laughs> nice. But as usual, I will make you lead by example. Well, I really. I don't know. I'm, I may be endorsing a, uh, a terrible person. He may he may be a, a war criminal. I don't know. But Jeff Maurer has a Substack. It's called I Might Be Wrong. And Who he is does that? I don't know. But he does a lot of media stuff. He I think he's some a, rando. No, he was a writer. He was okay. a Hollywood writer. He seems like he was in the news business. I should do more di- due diligence on him. But he he has. He is credentialed and very funny and very, very interesting. And the I Might Be Wrong substack is quite good. And this one I just love because it's one that I've experienced. I'm sure you've experienced too. The the piece headline is The Five Strangest Columnist Avatars. 
<laughs> so w- when you were at Politico, did they have a little pen and ink drawing of you? No, no, never. You, ne- you did, but you've had a like a mugshot that ran with your stuff. Yeah, but it wasn't pen and ink. So when you are, and I just recently lived through this uh, with doing my AEI official AEI photo, in which I look like I own a chain of Hardee's restaurants in the mid south and am open to uh, sponsoring local softball and pee wee football teams. Uh, it's a horrible picture, and I hate it. But it is tragically a, a fair reflection. <laughs> I like I like the criticism of Liz Brunig in here. We'll link this so you guys can see it. But so, of so he, uh, yeah. having too good picture. So he goes through. And looks at Elizabeth Bruning from the Atlantic and how hers is. And she he descri- does gorgeous. He's described, he describes her here. Um, he says, when you combine her Atlantic avatar with her New York Times avatar, in which she looks like your mom's friend's annoyingly successful daughter. Yes, she looks so good. And she, he goes through, but I want to share the bet. Let's see. Well, he, of course, correctly dumps on Max Boot, like and Mac, Max Boot's ridiculous hat. And don't put a hat on in your picture. But he gets to Kara Swisher at the New York Times. And she, in her picture, she has pulled it's her so glasses. <laughs> she's pulled her glasses down to the end of her nose. Yeah. And she's staring intently over the top. Now, of course, when the photographer tells you to do this, Kara Swisher, do not do it. Because that's the one that they're going to want. They're going to want the one where you're a goofball. So don't do it. But he says, he describes her headshot this way. You have got to be blanking kidding me. Why not just wear a T-shirt that says, all caps, important, serious journalist? Again, I think the problem might be the Times photographer. I can imagine them yelling, now one where you take yourself way too seriously. And if that was the instruction, she blanking nailed it. I, I wish the Beacon had thought of this genre so of finding bad avatars. It's so good. I, just, I really wish. That kudos, is a great idea. Kudos. Kudos. We, we may have to keep it going, but kudos right. to you, Jeff. Jeff, Bauer. I'm subscribing to your Substack right now. As you sit here, sorry if you can hear my typing, but I want to subscribe. That is very funny. Making money. Making money. Jeff? Uh, okay. All right. Okay, what? Oh, $60 a year, Styrville. <laughs> Guess I'll just click the free one. You know, I'm already on the free plan. God darn. All right. My obsession is uh, I, I applauded last week Katie Kirk's transparency in saying how she was really jealous of the hotter women who were younger than she was and – no, she wasn't a mentor to women. She tried to kneecap these bees. So, but the, the way we got there was Katie talking about how she edited out Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, comment about NFL players kneeling for the anthem. And she said she did it to protect Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, of course, we dumped all ah. over her. So, let's play the clip. Now she says she's, she's sorry. She shouldn't have done it. But this is what I really liked. Talking about journalism, and this is very much a journalism story, you did make an eye-opening revelation about an interview you did with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You decided to leave out newsworthy comments that she made on the subject of kneeling during the national anthem. Yeah. How did you justify that? It, it violates a cardinal rule of journalism to Well, do that. I think I think what people don't realize is we make editorial decisions like that all the time. And I chose to talk about this and put it in the book for a discussion. I really liked the concession that, it, okay, Katie, we, we usually don't make editorial decisions to protect our subjects. We're normally yeah. trying to get like maximal news from them. But I did like the concession that this kind of stuff, these small decisions shape 
the information you receive from totally. news people. Yeah. And people, consumers need, uh, kudos to her uh, because consumers need to think about this stuff more and understand that every piece, every article, everything that they consume represents choices. And what is the first bias is what to do and what not to do, right? The first bias are all of the stories that never get told and never get done. That's, that's the first spot. And uh, so correct. I, so I, I'll get, I'll give her a cheer and a half for admitting a half the truth. Cheer. Yeah. I have cheer. Well, that is all the time we've left. I've said something nice, so now I have to go do something else. That is <laughs> about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, please email yeah. us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. And give us a five-star, four-star review. Oh, that's right. possible review. What? Wait, before we go. We have to, we, we have input on our missing, uh, not uh, our Dinty Moore enthusiast. We, oh, we, hit we, me. We do have to follow up because she sent us back information. I don't know whether, I think, I don't remember who forwarded it to us, but we are in receipt uh, of the Dinty Moore info. And thank you for writing and we will talk more about it next time. But I would encourage everybody yes, to write us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. Is that right? That's correct. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.